Did you pick up on the fact that Joel said Renin? Oh God, I did that, didn't I? I'm gonna leave that in. I'm gonna leave that. Matt would be having a meltdown if he was here. Yeah, Matt yeah would, that's right. Jordy was shaking her uh, head. I plan on calling Renal the rest of the night. Thank you, and talking about anything related to the kidney. <laughs> Welcome to Freely Filtered, the twice-a-month podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NefJC journal clubs. NefJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk with your doctor a chiropractor, your neighbor's astrologist, essentially anyone except a hodgepodge of people you never met on a podcast. This podcast discusses off-label and unapproved medications. Hello, my name is Joel Toff, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight we have some of the filtrate, plus three special guests. Uh, We have returning visitor Jordi Cohen. Hi, uh, I'm Jordi Cohen. I'm a nephrologist and epidemiologist at the University of Pennsylvania, and my research is focused on the epidemiology and mechanisms of hypertension. Oh, this will be useful tonight. Excellent. We have Brian Bird, a cardiologist at the University of Michigan. Introduce yourself, Brian. Hi, I'm Brian Bird. I'm an assistant professor of internal medicine at the University of Michigan, and I'm a clinical investigator. My interest for a long time has been high blood pressure, and I'm particularly interested in forms of high blood pressure that involve mineralocorticoid receptor uh, activation. And my laboratory works on uh, novel means of detecting and measuring activation of the mineralocorticoid receptor and have interests in other aspects of hypertension as well. Excellent. Excellent. And uh, the last special guest is a person who's uh, dear to my heart. Uh, the f- After I left fellowship, uh, Dr. Steigerwald was kind of the first nephrologist that I met that really made me kind of taught me uh, what it was to be an attending nephrologist. Uh, Susan Steigerwald is a hypertension specialist in addition to being a nephrologist and was also the selection committee member of the hypertension region for NEF Madness 2019. Susan, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, well, Joel, you basically said it all. I'm re- I'm currently retired. Um, my interest uh, was largely with resistant hypertension, as well as primary aldosteronism. So this is a fascinating article. And I'm currently working with another retired colleague to develop uh, an interactive app for the DASH diet, which is almost to fruition. Outstanding. And then we have uh, two members of the regular filtrate. We have uh, Swapnil Hiramath. Swap. Hi, I'm Swapnil Harmat. I'm a nephrologist and epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa. I tweet at H. Swapnil. And we have Samira. Hey, I'm Samira Farouk, a transplant nephrologist at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. Um, I tweet at SS Farouk. This week's article looks at the prevalence of primary hyperaldo in patients with and without hypertension, and then proceeds to decimate the dogma that we have been teaching our residents and fellows on how to diagnose primary aldosteronism. Specifically, the aldo-renin ratio is shown to be woefully and embarrassingly insensitive, and a lack of sensitivity is an existential problem for any screening tests. Screening tests have to pick up everybody. I'm going to admit I didn't do exhaustive research on the aldo-renin ratio. I learned it as a fellow and gained additional expertise with it as an attending, 
and then was reassured that I was doing it right when I saw it enshrined into the Endocrine Society's clinical practice guidelines. So my first response is to complain about another clinical guideline that got it wrong. But we've been here before. Rinse, wash, repeat. Lesson, regardless of the evidence level in a clinical practice guideline, the answer may be wrong. But I actually think that is the small lesson here. The exciting view of this manuscript is that the whole idea of trying to diagnose a disease called hyperaldo is wrong-headed. We don't have one group of people who are normal and another group of people with primary hyperaldo, but rather people exist along a bell curve of varying degrees of aldosterone sodium resistance. On one of the spectrum, you have aldo that neatly suppresses as sodium intake goes up, and on the other end of the spectrum, you have people with sky-high aldo levels that doesn't suppress even a little in response to a sodium load. And then you have the very interesting middle, with people with modest aldo levels that do not suppress in the face of a sodium load. And these people can have high blood pressure, medium blood pressure, and normal blood pressure. It's a continuum. And maybe the lesson we should take from this is that testing everybody for 24-hour urine aldosterone excretion is less important than giving mineral corticoid receptor antagonists to much more people. Maybe spironolactone shouldn't be reserved as a fourth-line agent, but recognized as a second or even a first-line agent, one where we see if this patient has an exaggerated response to the medicine indicating some aldo-dependent hypertension. Maybe if we move that up in the treatment algorithm, we would have a lot less uncontrolled hypertension and a lot fewer people prescribe three and four drugs leading to treatment failure due to pill burden. Maybe the real lesson here is to de-dichotomize primary hyperaldo. Uh, Swapnil, uh, why don't you go over the methods for the study here? Sure. So the, the study is basically a cross-sectional study. Uh, and what they got was they got five different cohorts together. Do we have uh, a sense this- of when they started collecting some of this data? Is some of this data years old? I, I couldn't get a sense of that collection time period reading the article. Uh, and that's a good question. I suspect it's not necessarily done at the same point. Uh, and you definitely can't get 1,000 patients with primary hyperaldo or primary aldo at the same time as well. On the other hand, they did uh, have the urine measured, the aldosterone measured at, at Brigham for all the patients except for the ones from Alabama. For some reason, Alabama is different as we shall see for every reason. So either they were prospectively doing this for a long time or they had stored urine samples that they sent in to Brigham for this study. Uh, And I'm not sure uh, how that was actually done. So these are five different cohorts and and they are all slightly different. So, you know, for example, the one, uh, there's one which is on prospective phenotyping of autonomous aldose secretion, uh, which recruited overweight normotensive volunteers from the greater Boston area. So that's at one extreme, uh, which you can see when you look at the table one uh, in the results. And at the other extreme is the one from Alabama, which was mostly resistant hypertension patients. Uh, so, so it's a very heterogeneous mix, but the heterogeneity doesn't come from a single center. So some centers were quite different compared to other centers. I don't well, think it sounds matters. like these are different studies that had different primary goals. And you can almost read it in the methods section. We're going to store some of your serum and urine to you know, do some other analysis later on. Exactly. So, so that's one area where things were different. And again, you can see, right, the blood pressures are also starkly different uh, for the similar reasons. Is what, How was the measurement conducted? So uh, the salt loading is the key thing. So you want their salt load to be about roughly 200 millimoles per day. Uh, So in most, in four of the protocols, they actually got salt loading, except for Alabama. In Alabama, if your actual salt intake was pretty close, and it seems in Alabama, in patients with resistant hypertension, I was reading another study that I think Brian had pointed out to me, uh, their salt intake is, uh, the mean salt intake is more than 200 millimoles per day. 
in, in these patients. So that's their baseline. So they don't need any salt loading uh, in, in Alabama. It well, seems. So, there's, there's some hypertension specialists here. When you do 24-hour urines for sodium, how often do you see it below 180? Uh, Jordi, do you want to answer yeah. that question? Yeah, in terms of my clinic, the number of patients uh, who come in with high serum sodiums, I would say is not somewhere over 90%. Um, I, I very, very rarely have I seen patients actually objectively achieve a sodium less than uh, two grams per day on purpose. Often if they are achieving lower sodiums, it's uh, due to malnutrition or some other uh, factor contributing to it, not typically due to purposeful dietary restriction. Samira, you ever do this? No, I've never done this, but I actually had a question for those that do. Um, I was trying to read a little bit about the oral sodium suppression tests and found kind of a wide range of recommended um, sodium intakes. I was just wondering what the group does. I, I saw as low as five grams and all the way up to 10 grams per day, which seemed like a lot. I was wondering to the hypertension crew, um, what is your guidance to patients about this when you do this test? So what I do is I do exactly what they do in Birmingham is I, I check a 24-hour urine sodium. And just like Jordy says, they're all over 200, 240 or what have you. And I just then move along. I don't need to worry about a, a low sodium having a, a, a secondary a hyperaldo type effect. Brian, do you ever do this? Yeah, one of the things I do is I, I ask people about their sodium intake. And relevant to what Jordy was saying a second ago, I would say that almost everybody reports that they're on a low-sodium diet if they're coming to me for hypertension. And then, of course, my follow-up question is, how many milligrams do you eat in a day or are you reading labels? And the answer to that is almost always no. But I don't add salt. But I don't add salt. That's the other thing. So so this is um, along the – it reminds me of that old Drucker quote, like things that get measured get measured. And I think that's true, actually. And so the fact is that almost none of the – patients that any of us are seeing, I think, consume a truly low sodium diet, unless they are actively measuring how many milligrams a day they're eating, it's almost a foregone conclusion that they're not eating a low sodium diet. Yeah. Every time I give a talk to the interns and to the medical students, I always quote Ray Townsend. And I actually don't know what this, what the original citation for this is, but he always says that about a third of the food of the sodium in our diet is from uh, just preservatives and from what's already inside of foods and not what we're adding to it. And patients just have so much trouble wrapping their heads around that. Um, and you do occasionally see that light bulb go off when people do look at labels and, and see how much is going into their bodies and how much it can impact people, especially those with salt-sensitive hypertension. But I, I'd say that that takes quite a lot of intervention and a lot, most people are pre-contemplative about their sodium intake. So the other part about the, apart from the salt loading is what do you do with your medications? The, the classical thinking is you have to stop a bunch of them, right? The only uh, few medications that do not affect aldo production, I don't know, maybe alpha blockers, hydralazine, things like that, maybe not even alpha antagonists, which ones, Brian, and I think verapamil and deltaazem are supposed to have a very little effect, aldo uh, production on renin actually levels. Correct, yeah. yeah. Strictly speaking, uh, you know, if you take a very liberal approach, sorry, even stopping the mineralocorticoid antagonist is is not a bad idea. And and in patients who are uh, resistant hypertension, it may not be possible, right, to get their blood pressure at a, a healthy level after stopping all their medications that work for them. So in in that cohort, in the Alabama cohort, uh, they mainly stop the mineral corticoid antagonist and they stop whatever else they could, uh, but they didn't necessarily stop everything else. Whereas the other cohorts were much strict and they tried to stop either all their blood pressure medications. And sometimes, you know, they were normotensive people. 
um, or they uh, stopped as many of their pills that they could. You're frowning, Joel? Well, I'm frowning because, I mean, I'm just looking at table one, and it looks like besides the resistant hypertension, it looks like they completely stopped the medicine. Exactly. And it was it was just, and the, am I right that the resistant hypertension is just that Alabama cohort? Correct. If you're resistant hypertension, everything was cool except for the mineral corticoid receptor antagonists, and every other group in the in the study had everything stopped. Right. Okay. Uh, and I guess, you know, if they did not have resistant hypertension, it's possible uh, to stop all those pills. Uh, in, in practice, I find it hard because we mostly see patients with difficult to control or resistant hypertension. And, and were they specific at how long these people were washed out? I think it's about five to seven days, if I'm not wrong. We, we know from yeah. that. What was that? Sorry, study? two to 12 weeks. weeks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, two to yeah, 12 uh, weeks. Yeah, exactly. Uh, spironolactone hangs around forever, right? Uh, or rather, it's metabolites. And then, of course, this was a measurement. So, uh, each uh, place had their prote- protocol, either seated or supine. I thought supine was a gold standard, but I guess seated uh, was also done at some places. The blood pressures may have been measured at many times, but for this study, they took the blood pressure measurement during the renin aldo measurement. And the 24-hour urine, which I mentioned, was all uh, measured at the centralized lab at Brigham, except for the uh, Alabama cohort, which was done at uh, Mayo Clinic. So I guess it may be that- For a contemporary- for a contemporary blood pressure study, it feels like not having ambulatory blood pressure monitoring is just kind of almost out of bounds, right? Every study that we're seeing that's being done nowadays has ambulatory blood pressure. Why are you guys smiling? What, what, what am I missing? No, no, it's absolutely right. It's a fantastic point. It's true. They do not have a 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring at all. It's off, okay. it's office blood pressure. And I don't see that they go too much into how the blood pressure no, was even. They don't really talk about how the blood pressure yeah. was assessed. Yeah. This was a, a bunch of endocrinologists, right? <laughs> <laughs> they, they have a lot to teach us, but uh, they don't have uh, much to teach us about how to measure blood pressure, I guess. Shots fired. I actually am pretty convinced that salt sensitivity might sometimes mask itself as uh, white coat hypertension when it's not true white coat hypertension. Like these people who have these very labile blood pressures that sometimes are controlled and sometimes aren't, and they tell you that they're white coat. But if you did a few couple of ambulatory blood pressure monitoring tests, then you would catch that they're not white coat, that they're actually sustained hypertension. And so we actually do check, even in our patients that aren't always resistant hypertensive, just people with labile blood pressures, we always check a renin and an aldo to look to see if they have a suppressed renin and, and also to see if there's evidence of uh, salt sensitivity in those patients. Okay. Where are we in methods swap? Um, so, no, so to go back to Jordi's point, so the salt sensitivity, you're meaning to say that their salt intake is varying, which is causing their blood pressure to vary? Correct. Okay. Correct. Okay. Uh, and so that those are patients that uh, historically there are older small trials that uh, that assign these patients amylaride or mineral corticoid antagonists and that they responded quite well to them. So that's something that's been adopted in our, in our uh, hypertension practice. I'm sorry, specifically what was it adopted? Uh, giving salt sensitive patients who have evidence of a suppressed renin but a normal aldo, giving them a potassium sparing diuretic or a mineral corticoid antagonist. In generally, even if they're not resistant hypertensive. And generally, the ENAC antagonists are essentially considered equivalent to these MRAs or not so much? Not necessarily equivalent if we thought it was somebody with hyperaldo, and we can get into that further, because it doesn't prevent target organ damage from aldosterone, um, because aldosterone in itself has pro-fibrotic effects on the heart and kidneys. Uh, So uh, if you don't have a mineral corticoid antagonist on board, you're not preventing that target organ damage, regardless of what benefit you get. And those, and those those other additional effects of aldo 
are mediated through middle corticoid receptors? There's evidence, yeah. And so there's evidence that a mineral corticoid antagonist uh, might, should reduce some of that target organ effect uh, based on evidence. There was a study that was presented, I think, last year or the year before at AHA hypertension that showed that you do get benefit from the MRAs, but not as much as, for instance, in somebody with an adenoma removing the adenoma um, and taking away the source of the aldo. If, if they happen to have a, 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 a single adenoma as opposed to bilateral hyperplasia. Are we lo- still allowed to call that Kahn's disease? Or did that get abolished? Was he a Nazi? I don't even know. No, no, he wasn't a Nazi. I think Brian... Not a Nazi, still allowed to use it? I think Brian had a thread on Twitter a while ago about the first case series. Is that a mannequin or is that Brian still there? I, I'm listening very click- carefully. There's so much that I want to say. <laughs> Uh, trust me, I, I have a lot to say, but I haven't necessarily found this place to, to cut in. Quite, quite honestly, the it, world's best podcast guest is the one who listens very Listen, carefully. Swap, <laughs> I got to ask you something. So I've had a discussion with a group in France and their research on primary aldosteronism in their setting and resistant hypertension patients. What they do is they stop all the medications when they do their research and when they do their clinical care. There's a group in Italy that does the same thing. But I had a chance to ask actually both groups, well, wait a minute, doesn't that cause problems? And the group from France had the pithiest answer, which was those medications weren't working very well in those patients, so they wouldn't have resistant ever. And I'm curious to know, Swap, what you think of that response. That's an interesting response. Uh, and they're probably, in, in some respects, they're right. You know, it's, it's just scary, right? You have a patient whose blood pressure is 170, 180, and they are on you know, amlodipine and, and bisoprolol and what have you, uh, and chlorothalidone, and you're supposed to stop these uh, in a patient with a blood pressure of 180, it's, uh, it takes some courage, which I guess the French and Italian people have yes, more than I do. Yeah. More than me, more than I have, uh, because I have, I also haven't done that. I've stopped, I've stopped just the mineral corticoid antagonists, not all the other meds, but I will say that all of the renal denervation studies in resistant hypertensive patients that have been going on internationally, they're all stopping meds and keeping these patients in, with blood pressures in the 170s sustained, and, and people are managing it, and it's been ex- approved by hundreds of IRBs. Regarding whether or not uh, ENAC uh, inhibitors have the same beneficial effects with respect to fibrosis as mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists? I thought the answer to that was was no, but actually I could only find really one study that directly addressed that in a rodent model. And the suggestion actually was that ENAC inhibitors did have an antifibrotic benefit as well. So I know that we often presume that MRAs may have a unique uh, benefit, but uh, it may also be the case that uh, ENAC inhibitors do as well, but there's really very little that's been done in that in that arena. Brian, that's our next longitudinal study. Yes, I think that's let's, let's that's a it. very good point. I mean, we have now pathway two, pathway three. We have the you know the the group that did that. Brian Williams and colleagues did look. Wait, at, wait, wait, wait. Pathway three. We have pathway. Yeah, there's three? pathway three, and there's. The, is it is it published and results are out yeah, and everything? Yeah. yeah. And so look it up and you'll find out that uh, a milleride works pretty well. So it was, it was, so, uh, but let's talk about pathway three then, since we are on the top, they just took the patients from pathway two and, uh, and gave them, I don't know if it was it randomized or not, but I think they gave some of them amylaride. They did give um, some pathway of Pathway two is not randomized, right? They just had a random series of drugs. They all served. It, yeah, it was crossover. Right? Exactly. Now, it, yeah. That was so an all, ideally all conducted study. It was randomized. And was three the same methods? Three was the same cohort and they- Same cohort. And they gave them amylaride now. And how did it work? It worked similarly to the MRA. 
as well as spiro exactly as well as spiro oh but but again the outcome is blood pressure it's not a clinical outcome yeah. right which is we need long term target organ effects yeah Right. We don't know about target organ, but the biology is just not that clear yet. Okay. The last thing I heard was pathway three was like an ex- extension or an additional study on the pathway cohort and amiloride worked, but we don't have any end organ damage. We know it controls blood pressure, but we don't know its effect on heart failure and fibrosis and all those other aspects that are interesting to us. Is that fair? And you and Jordy are going to work together and you're going to do that study? And then- Yeah. Long term. I, I love it's it. a good idea. And then the other thing that uh, is related to this- is we don't really understand, you know, whether aldosterone could act via another receptor in addition to the mineralocorticoid receptor. So such that blocking, you know, skipping the blockade of the mineralocorticoid receptor might, um, and, and only working downstream of that on ENAC, maybe you're not addressing things, even if you do block MR. If you don't block MR, you're not addressing things that MR's activation is doing that um, you should have blocked, uh, apart from the upregulation of the milleride sensitive epithelial sodium channel. We anyway, I'm rambling, and you should cut all that. Oh, I, I already planned to. <laughs> okay, Swap, where, where are we on the methods? So we, we talked about the renin and ALDO measurements. I think that's where we were at. Um, and the ALDO, so the ALDO measurement, you know, I talked about ALDO-renin ratio. Uh, and the ALDO-renin ratio is uh, is a little bit tricky. Uh, so you can look at the Nest Madness blog post we talked about uh, because ALDO can be measured with different units, but renin also, it used to be measured as PRA and still is measured as PRA, that's plasma renin activity in many places. And that is moving to a direct renin concentration, which is the DRC. Uh, in many places. So it's, it's not just, you know, American units, non-American units, but it's also PRA units versus DRC units, which all of this would affect your ratio. So the numbers are all over the place, uh, you know, when you think about the ratio. So how do they report the numbers here? What, what's kind of best practices? Should we start, should we go to ALDO over DRC now? It, it depends on what you're measuring, right? If, if I say ALDO over DRC, but you are measuring PRA, then it's not useful for you. But the fact is you're going to be measuring DRC. Because that due to changes in the marketplace for testing, the vendor for the uh, PRA assay, the main vendor, stopped stopped uh, selling that. Okay, so everybody, so possible, the, the reality is that everybody's moving to DRC. Everybody's moving to DRC. I mean, it's possible okay. to do a send-out lab where you use mass spectrometry to measure plasma renin activity. I don't believe that's what people will be doing that. Can we, add, can we define DRC one more time? So it's a direct uh, renin concentration. So they're actually measuring the renin mass, right? Yes. And then some people will call it the plasma renin mass. There's different terms for it, but that's that's correct. Right. Whereas the uh, plasma renin activity actually measures the conversion uh, of angiotensin, uh, a nogen to angiotensin 1, which is the activity of the renin, uh, not the actual measurement of renin. Oh, yeah. No, so it just was always fascinating to me is that there really is some genuine difference in terms of the interpretation of these two and what they're actually representing. And they're sort of used interchangeably more recently, but I don't really think they should be. And so that's I, I'm I, I do actually understand why going forward there's there's a, there it sounds like there will be a shift to just using less of this altogether. So you're saying it's not just a market decision that's probably better, cl- more clinically viable to use a DRC. Is that true? Yeah, it's harder to measure the the, the plasma renin activity and to get an accurate measurement from from my understanding from what I've heard from pathology. It's a pain. I, I've done it. It's a radio immunoassay typically, and it, it's it is a pain to do. Whereas to use the uh, direct renin concentration is more like an ELISA. So, so in that in that situation, because the study used the PRA, I think would you hold that against it? I use the PRA. I'm a fan of it, but 
I, it is hard to measure correctly, so you have to know that you trust your Jordy, you can still get PRA where you are? We still get PRA where I am. And we get PRA where I'm yeah, at. That's very interesting. Yeah. Uh, actually, at one of the two hospitals. Yeah. One of the two hospitals is PRA. Yeah, I think most hospitals will be yeah. At least that was what was predicted a year or two ago. Yeah. So, uh, okay. uh, so that was one. And um, the other thing, so they got, uh, when the measurements were done, everyone was salt loaded, as we discussed earlier. Uh, so the salt loading to bring them up to 200 millimoles per day and uh, the measurements again why do we need to do a 24-hour urine aldo is because aldo secretion fluctuates over the 24-hour period it's it's pulsatile so if i get a spot sample then it won't be sufficient uh, so a 24-hour urine will actually capture the overall aldo secretion and is the aldo half-life is this the angiotensin con is this the angiotensin journal club that i joined? Uh, you missed a renin it's Oh, you really had to tell? Uh, <laughs> really? I had. Uh, I thought I was going to get away I, I with it. Jordy had been easy on me. And then as soon as Matt shows up, Swapple's like, hey, Matt, 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 you missed it. Joel was a total fool. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm on rental service call tonight. <laughs> oh, gosh. This is I don't, think, I don't think we explained the okay. difference between renin and renin. Matt, do you want to do that since you've arrived? I don't know if I want to go there. I mean, I thought this was going to be purely on angiotensin, but it sounds like we're even talking about renin. So I don't know what we're going to do anymore. Uh, so renin is, is for a cardiologist. Renin is for a nephrologist. Which is the one that the cow in a cow's stomach? That's renin with two ends. And what does it do in the cow's stomach? It helps like uh, cheese curd. Oh, that, that's renin, I think. That's something different. But anyway, I think it's... No, no, no. Renin makes cheese makes and cheese? milk curdle. Okay. <laughs> Renin is like uh, pepsin, whatever it breaks down. It's an enzyme. And I actually have a buzzer for bird. It's called I call it the bird buzzer. I oh, wish you missed I it. He, he was rambling earlier today. Go, <laughs> uh, oh my god. Okay, I'm we are never going to get line. through this, the the methods. Swap. Please tell me. Please tell me we're getting close to the end of the methods. This, this is it actually. And they they measured the aldo, the twenty four hour urine aldo, which was you know sent to Brigham. Uh, except uh, if you were from Alabama when it went to Mayo Clinic. And uh, uh, the blood pressure was defined based on the AHA criteria 2017. Unless you had resistant hypertension, then you had labeled as resistant. And otherwise, you know, it's just the outcome is renin-independent aldo secretion. So, right, the outcome is aldo secretion more than 12 micrograms in 24 hours in the setting of salt loading and a suppressed renin. That's what we mean when we say renin-independent aldo. So that's the definition of primary aldosterone used in this study. Okay, so Susan from Zoom Zoom Hell is asking how were the blood pressures measured? Uh, we kind of talked about that a bit earlier. We don't have 24-hour blood pressure monitoring. We don't have a lot of description in the methods about how their office blood pressures were monitored. We don't know if they were uh, automated. Am I right? Or yeah, we don't have any of that information. No, no, none of that data. So. Uh, a little bit of a black box there, unfortunately. Okay. Samira, what can you tell us about salt loading? Um, I don't have a lot more to add than what we had already uh, discussed. Um, I think maybe what's most interesting is to look up the sodium content of some common foods. And the one that always surprises me is that uh, muffins have almost 400 um, milligrams of sodium. Um, what kind of muffin? Just a general muffin, uh, maybe blueberry, <laughs> chocolate chip. Um, which is which is a lot because I think you know, as Brian said, when you ask patients, they're all on this low sodium diet, and I would never think that a muffin is high in um, salt content. 
I bet they also don't typically realize that muffins are like 1,500 calories each, and they think that they're healthy. Have you ever seen a muffin at a, at a truck stop? They are immense. How large they are? <laughs> they are huge. I mean, it's got to be like double that. <laughs> sorry, I did find something on the blood pressure measurement in the supplement, uh, which I'm sorry, I had not read earlier very carefully. So it seems it did vary everywhere, but they do explain how the blood pressure is measured, which was, again, these were five different studies. Uh, so there mm-hmm. are five different ways of measuring blood pressure. In one, it was using the AOBP, uh, so automated oscillometric blood pressure measurement with the uh, BP2. Another one was AOBP using the Omron 907XL, which was the one used in Sprint. A third one was uh, measurements done in triplicate using something called Dynamap. So again, this tells to Joel's earlier question about how long the patients were accumulated. So they say that from 2000 to 2013, blood pressure is measured with a mercury sphygmomanometer. And from 2013 to 2019, it was the BP true uh, measurement. So yeah, these patients oh are from God. a long, long time ago. So BP was all over the place, but it, I mean, they, they do seem to be that uh, these were patients in some kind of an academic hypertension center. So, you know, they made the methods are slightly different, but they seem to be pretty high quality measurements. I have a question for you, Sopdalt. Uh, are we still chatting about methods? Is that cool if I jump in? No, please. Uh, no, please, Jordy, keep going. Completely glossed over the statistics, so go ahead. You totally glossed over the statistics. And as somebody who I've noticed that your name is sometimes on meta-analyses occasionally, like a thousand meta-analyses. A is this thousand a meta-analyses? <laughs> I'm, ex- I'm exaggerating, but he's like... The- Can we go back to talking about baked and- goods? <laughs> 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 so we usually... <laughs> I, I, yeah. So now we've got renin, we've got uh, renal, we've got uh, meta-analysis. I mean, you're just making me want to stay. And so, uh, so Swapnil, I, I know that we usually think of meta-analyses as, uh, as studies that are combining several different studies together that had, that had all studied very similar things, but were in different populations. And we don't typically think of a meta-analysis as a single study when you've got patient level data, but that is something you use meta-analysis for. Would you have done meta-analysis here? Absolutely right. That's a fascinating point. This is truly speaking an individual patient level meta-analysis and the methods they have used are not typical meta-analytic methods. They have pulled all this as a single cohort. You're absolutely right about that. Cool. I thought I was a little crazy reading it because these are really great researchers, the people who did this. Um, I have a lot of respect for them. And seeing that sort of surprised me because it seems like this is genuinely, as Joel was mentioning at the beginning, these are several different studies that happen to all be measuring serum in in people who are hypertensive and doing 24-hour urines, people who are hypertensive. And I think that because there were different hypotheses across these studies potentially to start with and that they weren't all sort of with the intention of we are collecting these patients for this purpose, that there's a lot of reason that calculating these results meta-analytically would potentially give slightly different results. I don't know how big of an impact it would have. I'm really curious to look at the data and to try running that and see. That's a good point, especially because the populations were so heterogeneous. It would widen the confidence intervals. Right. That's what the effect right. would be. Exactly. So. Yeah. Uh, but since Ma- Matt is here, I, th- I want to ask him a question about the stats. They use something called the mice package. The mice package? Is that is that when you get an extra one from Jackson? No, I'm, 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 I'm serious. I, I'm very serious. So so they said they uh, they using the mice package in R version 3.8.0. Hey, I've never even opened So, up so you don't know about the mice package? <laughs> Come on. I mean, I can see my graphs could really improve with the mice package. So it's a, uh, I'll, I'll look into that and I'll... Wait, I thought they used SAS. 
or maybe uh, they, they use SAS, but there was one thing for which they use the mice package. So this is um, wait, they use SAS and R. Yes. Uh, did they not use Excel? They did I not mean- use. Uh, <laughs> they did not use SPSS. Or data, <laughs> uh, but this was the um, uh, so there are different ways of uh, putting in um, when there is missing uh, data. Uh, so the mice package refers to um, mul- multiple in- imputation using chained equations. So it's just a complicated, a different, slightly different way of uh, imputing uh, data. I was not going to talk about it, but you know Matt was here, so I had to torture us all. Yes, I get it. Okay, are we? Uh, I mean, it's only been an hour. Are we done with methods? Yes. Okay, so uh, Samira, uh, please put us out of our misery and give us some results. What they find? Um, so we covered most of this um, in the beginning, but a little bit more details. Um, there were 1,846 patients that had complete data for aldosterone, renin, and urine sodium. Of those, 1,015 had sodium excretion of at least 190 millimoles over 24 hours. And of those, a subset of 691. So the investigators were not interested in anybody whose renin was not suppressed? Is that we get those people that don't have a suppressed renin and we just kind of throw them out? Is that right? Correct. They only looked for this um, renin-independent elder production in those with suppressed renin. Did I get that right? Yes. So they found there was more severe hypertension in those that had higher BMI, those that were diabetics. And then specifically about the urine aldosterone, um, they found that there was this continuum in parallel with severity of hypertension that ranged from 6.5 to 14.6 micrograms over 24 hours of urine aldosterone. Um, And they reported in the supplement that these findings were similar uh, by study site. They then looked at the adjusted prevalence of biochemically overt primary aldosteronism. And this again, Um, had this continuum in parallel to the severity of hypertension that ranged from 11.3 to 22%. So what were they they adjusting this for? Why why did they have to adjust the uh, prevalence? So I'm going to turf that question to somebody else. Yeah, who knows the answer to that? (laughs) They adjusted it for age, BMI, race, sex, history of diabetes, uh, and the 24-hour urine. Uh, to calculate the prevalences. So can we just go by, Do is primary hyperaldo associated with gender? Is that, is that a known finding? And so certainly people can... with obesity have higher aldo levels, right? That's a known finding, uh, more adipos- adipicity. I don't know how to say and- that word. And they have more cell sensitivity and also estrogen. Um, so for instance, uh, we, we've seen this in some transgender patients who take exogenous estrogen, um, that it can increase renin levels that can then increase aldo and secondary aldo, but you don't tend to see uh, renin-independent hyperaldo related to hormones as far as I'm aware. Okay. So gender, BMI, and age all seem totally legitimate things to adjust yeah. these numbers by. Okay. Sorry about that, uh, Samira. No, I, I mean, learn something. Um, so some other important results, they found that among the participants that were confirmed to have biochemically overt primary aldosteronism, the sensitivity and negative predictive value of the serum aldo to renin ratio was not great. Um, I think, Jordy, you had something to say about that. Oh, just that that's historically known. There have been several studies for the last few years that have shown we know that ARR is not very sensitive, but that it tends to be pretty specific usually. Um, It's very unusual to get uh, false positives, but um, it is not quite as unusual to get false negatives. And there have even been some studies that have shown horrendous sensitivity 
uh, even worse than what the study showed. Uh, others that have shown that it's slightly better, and I think it really does depend upon the population sometimes, that could be what impacts it in terms of what your pretest pro- probability is. Right. And so I, th- and I think this is relevant to how I opened and framed this, is that it was my understanding, and I guess it was wrong, that the aldo-renin ratio was a screening test. And the reality is that we only deploy it in patients with a high pre-test probability of it being positive. I think Brian had mentioned in the chat earlier that about 20% of patients, if, you, if you're if you correct about uh, selecting these patients, are going to have a positive uh, ARR. Is that right, Brian? So about 20 per, 20% of patients with resistant hypertension had primary aldosteronism in a study that was done by David Calhoun previously. And that was, he's one of the authors of this uh, work. And in this work, Again, they found about 20% or 22% of the patients with resistant hypertension had primary aldosteronism. So the test tends to be deployed in settings that are greatly enriched for people who have this problem. Screening the entire population of people with high blood pressure, as John Funder, I think, was suggesting in his commentary on this. He has a video commentary on this paper. That seems less sensible as far as I can tell. I think what he was really saying in that video commentary was rather than screening with the ARR, everybody ought to be given sort of a salt loading test like what was done here. That That's pretty complicated to do, I think, and possibly unsafe in some people. So I wouldn't be too... So I didn't see his video editorial, but his written editorial uh, had an interesting part at the very end. They were looking at the percentage of people with hypertension who get an ARR. So the people get the minimal amount of workup for secondary hypertension. And it was one percent, one in a thousand, I think is what he said. What about 2% in, in a study recently published by uh, Vivek Bala's group in Stanford. Uh, and this has been, and Brian, feel free to jump in if I'm incorrect on any of this. There have been several, a couple of studies now that have shown that among resistant, apparent treatment resistant hypertensive resist- patients. So he was looking, he, his one in a thousand was among all comers. With oh, yeah. Th- and that's, you're not really typically screening all comers with hypertension. No, no, you not, should right? be screening Right. Either, I mean, unless they're hypokalemic or there's really a high right, level Right. If you suspicion. take a look at the endocrine recommendations, they have this whole kind of setup of who gets it. It's resistant hypertension. It's hypokalemic. It's people who've got uh, first degree relatives is another one. Uh, but it was a pretty select I think population. that there may be a guideline in Japan that suggests that everybody with hypertension should be screened. But I don't believe anywhere else has adopted that notion. And, and Brian, is, when they say screen, are they talking about a, an yes. ARR, which seems to be the wrong test? And I can't see us doing 24-hour urine collections on every patient with uh, hypertension and doing this, the salt loading. Samira, I have no idea where we were with uh, method, uh, the uh, just results. Just two more uh, you were about to do results the- to highlight. Um, so they found that in the resistant hypertension group that had the uh, primary aldosteronism, um, only 25% had a serum aldosterone of less than 10 nanograms per milliliter. Um, and similar to the urine aldo level, there was a continuous relationship between severity of renin-independent aldo production and biomarkers of mineral corticoid activity, as well as serum aldosterone. So earlier in the results, you talked about patients with, um, can you remind me of the exact language? It was biochemically something Biochemically evident. overt primary aldosteronism. Hyperl. And that their definition of that was purely based on the urinary aldo, the amount of 24-hour Correct. urine aldo in a patient with suppressed renin yes. levels and adequate sodium. Gotcha. Samir, you're done with your results? Yeah, I think that's it. Okay. So one of the things that I that I know that Dr. Steigerwald was concerned about was the lack of um, ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. And I know she mentioned to me earlier on the phone that maybe uh, a number of these patients that we call normotensive 
if you had done a more sensitive measure for hypertension may not have been, they may not have been as normotensive as we think they were. I'm wondering if we should start using uh, 24-hour urinaldo as our uh, test for mass hypertension. Well, there are some studies, I guess, that show that AOBP can have a lower blood pressure reading than ABPM. Isn't that right, Swapnil, uh, Jordy? So I guess it's possible. But I mean, these are pretty careful measurements that they're making. But I thought about, you know, uh, one of the implications of this study, it's fine to say, hey, all of you should be doing 24-hour urinaldo, but we don't do it even now at an academic center. So it's, it's you know, it's easy to say, but hard to do. Um, the therapeutic implications of, you know, MR antagonists should be elevated is something I'm very, very sympathetic to. Uh, and this did come up during uh, the, the tweet chat on FJC as well is, uh, why does it have to be ACD and then only you know, the fourth agent is spironolactone. So uh, ACD, no, it's not ACDC. ACD is um, uh, angiotens, uh, ACE inhibitors or ARBs, uh, calcium channel blockers. Uh, so typically the dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers, amlodipine or nifedipine, followed by uh, diuretic, not followed by or diuretic, uh, mainly the thiazide-like diuretic, lorthalidone and nepamide. So ACD are typically the first line agents, right? So if you have a patient with hypertension, you put them on either A or C or D. Uh, and then if it's A, then you add on D or if you have C, then you add on A or whatever, you know, you work through those combinations. Uh, and that's what the primary care physicians have been told. That's the typical guideline. Uh, and, and spironolactone is the drug of choice for the fourth drug based on pathway two. Uh, but should we be doing spironolactone before? Do we need, you know, another all hat uh, for that to happen? I love that. Totally agree. I think that the, there's a hot, strong likelihood that a lot of these patients, as, as we see from the data, that they're very salt sensitive and that they're going to have a normal blood pressure because they're fasting coming in for labs to the clinic. And then as soon as they eat something, their blood pressure later in the day is going to be sky high or while they're rest oh, while they're sleeping and, and we'll miss all of that. Jordy, you've been talking a lot about salt sensitive hypertension. Can you give me a, both like a functional and a technical definition of what that is just so we're all on the same page there? Uh, so there are patients who respond to sodium restriction and there are patients who do not respond to sodium restriction with regard to um, their blood pressure. Uh, patients who are salt sensitive tend to be more responsive to diuretic therapy um, because of its ability to, to assist with sodium excretion, uh, whereas those who are not salt, salt sensitive tend to be less responsive to diuretics. There are some theories that that's part of why black patients, for example, respond better to diuretics based on all hat. Um, they responded better to, to thiazide compared to ACE inhibitors or ARBs. And the thought is that there is some evidence that black patients tend to have more salt sensitive hypertension. Um, and that may go hand in hand. Uh, there, we need, from my knowledge, we need more data to support that, though. Am I right that people's phenotype can change over time? That yeah. patients kind of And as become... people gain and lose weight, for example, because more obese patients tend to be, have more salt-sensitive hypertension often. And uh, if they have bariatric surgery or if they lose weight on their own, um, exercise more, then sometimes that can improve. I had a small caveat to add about mice. D don't. Don't if delay. Interested. No, no one's interested, but but you need to. So salt sensitivity in mice, different strains of mice have different salt sensitivity. And that's something that a lot of people study. And the definition in salt sensitivity in mice is different than humans, which makes it very confusing. You put mice on a very low or actually no sodium diet and you have their blood pressure measured through a conscious way where you put a catheter in their carotid artery. And then you uh, put them on a high salt diet and you look at the delta between that value when it goes down to high, and that's your definition of, of salt sensitivity. So some breeds are, are salt sensitive and others are not? or Yeah, like a, a C57 Black 6, the one that everyone knows about. Oh, everyone. Yes, everyone. Well, it's 
okay. Everyone but jolt off. Um, yeah. <laughs> Samira, do you got anything else you want to say? Any commentary you want to make? Um, no, I uh, celebrated two years of NEFSIM um, recently and um, looking forward to another year, hoping to hit 50 cases. And um, we're sending lanyards to anyone starting medical school residency or fellowship. So just send our Twitter account a DM and we will get those over to you. Uh, the Twitter handle is nef underscore sim. S-I-M. Um, so we measure usage in a variety of different ways. Um, so one way is through the WordPress analytics. And so we can measure the number of visitors, number of views. In the last two years, we've had, I think we're all, almost up to 270,000 views from over 100 countries, which has been pretty cool to see. Um, and another way is um, through our Twitter followers. We just hit 5,000 Twitter followers. Um, and our email subscriber list is just about around 500 right now. So uh, this week for me, uh, the big deal was uh, I've been working for the last year on a special issue of Seminars in Nephrology, which is uh, a journal with theme issues, and it comes out quarterly. And this month's or this quarter's theme is uh, social media and nephrology, uh, mainly with a focus on medical education. And we have... Uh, uh, 10 articles plus an introduction covering all different aspects of uh, social media and medical education. It's been super exciting to work on. Uh, we have a few authors right here with us. Uh, Matt and Samira teamed up with a uh, uh, the ultimate article in the, in the, in the issue at the very end uh, discussing NS, the NSMC and using uh, teaching uh, professionalism and the use of social media. And Swapnil has the second article in the issue uh, looking at journal clubs, but it's a, it's a great issue with a lot, covering a lot of different aspects. There's a lot of fun working on it. I thought that was a tail. Yeah, it's a tail. Banging. It is a tail banging back and forth and a dog whining. It's just a, a lot of tails tonight. <laughs> okay. Uh, Matt, do you have uh, some reviews to read from uh, iTunes? Okay. So uh, Strive011 says, excellent. Thankful for a place to hear all the brilliance at one place. So, I mean, that's can't get can't better, get better than, than that. that. That's right. Um, Nefrol writes, even better than the real NefJC. I'm going to be honest. If you asked me about the original Twitter NefJC, I'd say that I like the idea better than the actual thing. Trying to participate or even follow the good points was always chaotic. For those like me, this is an incredible improvement. It allows us to listen to the Journal Club in a linear way without missing important points or getting distracted by side discussions. Strong work, highly recommended. So I think that's probably those are good points. It's some, it is it is challenging in the real Twitter chat to follow sometimes. Um, and then the the last one for for today is L LNG eight eight nine four making nephrology exciting and entertaining. Thank you for these podcasts. They make nephrology entertaining and exciting and help us keep abreast of the literature. Okay, whose mom so is that? Are, yeah, that's actually my dad. <laughs> right <there>. No. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I mean, it's Father's Day, so what can totally you appropriate, say? Totally appropriate, totally <laughs> appropriate. Uh, okay, hey. So I, I have to share, um, I, I actually have a surgery resident that I work with who is amazing, who sent me an email, I think it was last night or the night before, I was um, sharing a manuscript with him that he's on. 
And, uh, and I was, and he asked me why I, um, why only uh, in the manuscript, there was a comment, why did you only cite one paper here when you're describing 18 papers? And I said, oh, it's because of one of our NFJC posts that describes all 18 of those papers. Uh, and, and he was like, oh, I'm familiar with NFJC. Yeah, that site's amazing. I, and, and the podcasts are wonderful. I, I actually went back and listened to all of them. I've learned so much about renal physiology. That's a surgery resident. That's a surgery resident. I, I, I think he's not the average surgery resident. He's freaking amazing. But I had to share that we got like exclamation points from a surgery resident. Nice. Like wow, that. that's a high praise. He bad he said the word renal, though. <laughs> I mean. Okay. Uh, anybody have anything else? Okay. Thank you guys for joining us uh, tonight. Remember, please rate and review this podcast. Get Matt to read your review on air. Uh, and until... Uh, next week. I think we got some pretty good studies coming down the pipe. It should be uh, a good summer. Thanks a lot, everybody.